Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, machaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining and listening. I'm so excited to have as our guest on this, our inaugural podcast, David Radloff, Vice President of Commercial and Industrial Sales of Mueller Industries. And as you will hear, he is oh so much more when it comes to a life lived in the export world. I've known David for a number of years through our membership in the West Tennessee District Export Council, and I'm very pleased that he could join me today. Hello, David, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy. How are you today? And thank you for including me in this project. I'm very excited. Yes. Well, I'm excited that you're here, and uh, it's, uh, we hope it'll be interesting for everybody. Let's, uh, let's begin with a little bit about your personal journey when it came to uh, developing a career in international business. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in a very parochial town at the time. It's a fairly sophisticated town now, but I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, it was a sleepy little textile town. And of course, today it's a major financial and business center. But I grew up in a, uh, in a quiet place, although I was initially born and raised in New York City, which is where I think I got my interest in the more cosmopolitan things in life. Yeah. And that, and growing up in Charlotte, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of exposure, primarily as a result of my family, to international issues. My family is from Russia on both sides of the family. So I remember from the time I was a little kid, lots of discussions about the, the home country and how the family escaped the Bolsheviks and during when the revolution broke out. Yeah. So that, that kind of was some of the backdrop. So I had the international exposure there. And then I was very fortunate as a child that my parents exposed me through books and movies to lots of things that you would consider to be international. Uh, ancient history, I was fascinated with Greece and Rome, Middle East. Uh, I have recollections as a kid of going to the old these Cinemascope Windjammer movies, the, the, the tall ships that used to cruise the South Pacific, and that made me really interested in that part of the world. And of course, kids my age, having grown up in the 50s, we had still had a lot of exposure to World War II, so you know, I had a lot of exposure to Europe and the Pacific, and so I think all those things combined gave me a desire to see the world at a young age. You know, it was similar for me. I think I told you this one time. There was something, when I first got into the shipping business, there was something romantic about the idea of international business. Uh, I think I still see it that way to a certain extent, though, you know, I'm more realistic and uh, I've seen the real world as it pertains to exports. But and, I, that's a, and that's a great, I mean, that word is romanticism because I'm a kid. I didn't know about business at that point. I just knew that there were places around the world that looked really interesting 
and I wanted to go see them. I didn't know in what context I would do that ultimately. And I was right. fortunate as time progressed, I was able to do it as a business person. But as a child, I didn't realize that was how I was going to see it. I just knew I wanted to see it. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I never foresaw what became my career. It just sort of happened. You know, I just kind of happened to end up where I am today. What, what about you? Would you say it just sort of happened to you or were you focused on... A, you know, working towards a career in international business. I'm like, like in college, for example. Well, I just, I just know from a young age, I wanted to see the world. As I said, I didn't know what, in what capacity I would mm -hmm. do it. And I think by the time I did go to college, at that point, I, I knew I wanted to do something internationally. I didn't, okay. know, I didn't know at that point whether it was going to be a college professor or foreign service or, you know, the intelligence services. Whatever it was going to be, I was going to try to direct myself into something that would allow me to travel and see the world to try to fulfill this childhood dream I had. And yeah. As it turned out, for a, for a number of years, it looked like it was going to be through academia because I went to university in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and at that time we had a very robust international relations program. And, of course, this is going back into the early 70s before you had really any significant international business curriculum. Right, so right. if you were going to study international, like in my case, I studied it in the, in the context of the political science department, studying international relations. Right. And in that, in, and in that world, the, the, the topics of discourse back in that period were conflict resolution, peace, war, and defense studies third world development types of issues. So I was exposed to international at that level academically, but as, as my regional interest began to emerge, I was interested in the Middle East, mm -hmm. I started studying you know, Islamic studies, uh, you know, the cultural issues as it related primarily to the Middle East, but elsewhere as well. And that was kind of how I started putting some substance to it. And at that point, really, my goal was to become a international relations professor. I mean, mm -hmm. I wanted to be a, a professor at that point, so I did my uh, undergraduate and graduate work and was very fortunate insofar as I had several professors that were mentors for me that really directed me into the international field when I was still young and impressionable. Sure. So that, that, that really got me hooked on it. And from a young age, even as a, a an early uh, as an early undergraduate, I started developing my international relations, and specifically in the Middle East. And was there something that was happening in the world? Was that Reagan uh, when you were in college? Well, that would have been Reagan. Would have been when I went in grad school. Prior oh, okay. to that, it would have been it would have been Carter. Carter, and yeah. So were things that were happening under Carter the, you know. Iran or whatever. That, That's a that good had... question to ask, and you picked the right country to ask about. Um, one of the guys, one of the professors uh, that happened to be pretty influential on me was a former foreign service officer who had been stationed in the Middle East, and he said to me, this is probably in 74, so I would have been a sophomore. That's how long ago this is. He said to me, start looking at Iran. That's an interesting country to study. So as an undergraduate, as a sophomore, I started studying Iran. And of course, at that point, the Shah was in power, right. and he was secularizing, modernizing Iran. And what everyone was missing along the way was that he was essentially alienating the Iranian population. Of course, right. the, 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 uh, the, uh, um, 
the, the situation in the country was the West was loving it because he was consuming, you know, arms and moder- you know, the instruments of modernization. But at the mean, in the meantime, the people in the streets were being alienated. And of course, he was suppressing them with the use of the secret police, SAVAK. And mm-hmm. the Ayatollah at that point had been exiled to France. He was living in France. Yeah. So my professor said something's going to happen there. And this is in 74. So this is five years prior to the revolution. I started writing papers and researching the concept of political legitimacy in Iranian society and the imamate and how, you know, by alienating the religious community and the people, the Shah was setting the stage for what ultimately transpired, which was the revolution that we're obviously grappling with today. But that got me hooked. Yeah, it was So I got hooked at that point. Yeah, it was a fascinating period. It was, and, and, and I felt like with the people I was being exposed to through these professors, because we had you know, visiting professors coming in from all over the world. So I was getting exposed to it and really got hooked on it. And so I figured this is going to be a really great lifestyle being an academic. And the problem for me was that it was a little too sedentary. Mm-hmm. And I decided that it, as time went on, I thought it would be more interesting to find a endeavor that would allow me to travel more and get more exposure as opposed to sitting and studying and researching. And it was at that point I decided pursuing something in the in the business world would be more interesting than staying in academia. Did you think of yourself as having a sales personality, or that really no, wasn't no. part of it? Though? No, I'm a very introverted, shy person. And no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm a very introverted, shy That's person. That's not the David I know, but I believe you. <laughs> but but what but what but what I had was I really had this tremendous interest in different cultures and different societies and different people. So, though I was shy and introverted, my my lust for information and knowledge and exposure gave me this energy and enthusiasm that I channeled into my sales career. And yeah. so as I traveled the world, I think because I didn't go as the, and I, I know this is not a, a good thing to say, but as I traveled the world, the general impression of most Americans is they simply came to do their business and then they left. They, right. You know, the people I dealt with around the world didn't really feel like American business people in particular were that interested in the culture and the society. Right. And, and I, took, I came at it from a different angle. I was really more interested in the culture and the society as a precursor to doing the business. So I think that gave me a created a relationship for me with the people I was doing business with where they saw me as different and right. they really appreciated the fact that I was so interested in their culture and society and history and absolutely and we, and we can talk about this later when we get to some of your stories but I still contend today that it's the relationships that that enhance the business that keep the business going that develop the trust sometimes i think companies get away from that idea and it's it's more mechanical mechanical right corporate but i still contend it's relationships and that personal appreciation of the other person or or respecting them that you know keeps business uh develops the business yeah no without without any question and and i found people being so receptive to my coming and visiting and seeing them in large part because i was there really more i was there because of my interest in them personally and of their culture and society i've always made it a point and i've said this to other folks that i've worked with over the years before you go anywhere you want to really immerse yourself in that country and that society and study the history and the culture and you know the 
things that will give you a better connection to the people that you're dealing with above and beyond the, the mechanics, like you said, of the business itself. And that, I think, helped me a lot. Plus, it ultimately let me fulfill this childhood fantasy of yes. seeing the places and appreciating the places I was going. And, of course, I had a chance to see some really interesting places along the way at a point in time where this is pre-fax machines, pre-cell phones, you know, the pre-the homogeneity you see today worldwide to where when you went out, you were really going on an adventure. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid a lot of that's been lost today. You know, with the, especially with you know, uh, email and the social media. The, when I went out and did the business, you really had to go to the places you wanted to, to do business. And today, you can do things. I guess it's easier to do the business today, but it's certainly not as interesting, in my opinion. I think you can do more. I still believe you can do more business with some face-to-face -face contact. But uh, you know, I don't know if everybody believes that. Um, how did you transition from academics to a, a job? What was your first, you know, uh, position outside of academia? Well, you know, it was interesting because when I first, when I left academia, I, you know, I was working on my doctorate at University of North Carolina and completed my written exams and I had to finish my dissertation. I, you know, I left, I guess, in a all but dissertation status and I, I was certain I was going to come back and finish it. And I figured, okay, I'll go out, I'll go travel the world as a business guy, and the information I accumulate will then serve as the basis for me completing huh. my dissertation. So I, my going out in the business world was really going to be a temporary thing to help me compile the additional information I needed to complete the dissertation. The problem was once I got into the business world and got a taste of the excitement and the energy and the productivity associated with it, it was very hard for me to go back to the as I said, the sedentary qualities of the academic community. I mean, I still consider myself academic at some level, but the, the energy of the business world was just addictive to me. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to go and do the research that I needed to do for my academic work, but I didn't want to give up continuing the research. Once I got into doing the research and traveling the world and studying and seeing, yeah. it was like, well, I really don't want to stop doing this. And of course, for a number of years, I stayed in contact with my committee members and my, the chairman of my committee. And you know, the, the the point was I was going to go back, and I never went back. So yeah. here I am, what thirty eight years later, and you well, know. you can still you can still <laughs> finish that PhD. I'm sure that's on your. Well, you know, it was funny. I went back several years ago, and by that point, the supposed let's call it the statute of limitations had run out on me, and they said, well, it's too late now. You know, so I, 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 I couldn't go back. But I would like to go back and yeah. at some point teach and try to impart whatever experience and knowledge I acquired I along that. the way to, to young folks and try to give them the kind of excitement and energy and enthusiasm that I had for, for international business. I mean, Yeah, that would be great, actually. Um, so was your first job with your family business or, or you didn't work with for the family business I can't remember no you know that it, when I was contemplating making this move into the real I'll call it the real world there at that point and this is how long ago this is there were really three large corporations in North Carolina because again I was in North Carolina and, and I wanted to go to work for one of the big international companies in North Carolina and there were three of them at that point one was in the cigarette business I didn't want to do that and the other two were 
uh, really textile and apparel companies there. That was really the primary industry in North Carolina, the tobacco and textiles and apparel, and, and furniture to a secondary degree. Right, and textile was your family. Yeah, my, our family was in, had been in the textile business. Right. And so I ended up interviewing with a company that was based in North Carolina, and they had, at that point, significant international operations already. And I figured that would be a good way to get exposed to the international business world. And so they literally brought me in as a trainee to learn the business with the expectation that at some point in time, once I knew enough about the fundamentals of their business, that I'd have an opportunity at some point to go into the inter, their international operations. Now, were they manufacturing overseas, or they were setting up, or setting up dealers? Kind of, what was well, they their... were primarily a, a U.S.-based manufacturing company, but they already had significant, a significant presence internationally. Yeah. Uh, major manufacturing operations in Europe. Um, they were doing a little importing, but for the most part, most of what they made, they made domestically, of course. Wow. Um, and they had factories all over the country. In fact, when I joined them, they, they were the largest employer in Puerto Rico where we were taking advantage of an extended tax holiday. So what, we had five factories in Puerto Rico at that point. Was that before the Caribbean Basin Initiative? Yeah, that was prior to CBI. Yeah. And then, of course, I got into the, involved in the CBI thing later on after right. I had developed the experience and knowledge I needed about the industry, but they sent me for my initial assignment to a division in El Paso, Texas, and, you know, right on the border, and that gave me an opportunity. At that point, we weren't really doing much in Mexico, other than we had people coming over every day to work in the factories in El Paso, but it gave me a chance in my spare time to start traveling in Mexico, which gave me some good exposure to, you know, the Latin Latin market or right. Latin culture society because at that point I really wasn't doing business there but it, gave, it started uh, reinforcing my wanderlust so yes. you know that was a really wonderful experience because I on the weekends we'd travel into the interior of the country and around of course back then it was a pretty safe exercise yeah because you had to cross in, in through Juarez and of course today Juarez is a little more problematic than it was back then and uh, that kind of gave me a, the, the initial wanderlust and then they transferred, I got transferred back to corporate after a couple of years, back to North Carolina. And then uh, you had mentioned the Caribbean Basin Initiative. Yeah, maybe explain that. Uh, some people may not remember what that was about. Uh, yeah, that was, that was an opportunity for U.S. companies to ship raw materials to certain Latin Caribbean countries, Latin Caribbean countries, where they could take advantage of the cheaper labor costs and assemble the finished products and simply pay the duties on the labor value that had been added to the product when they brought it back into the country. Right. So I got involved in a, in a, in a startup team actually with the company I was with and we started venturing into Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, setting up both contract manufacturers. Mm -hmm. We'd find companies down there that were already set up making the products we were interested in and we would send our teams in of which I would be one where we would go in and try to um, engineer them and establish the quality systems to the standards that would get us the products that we were looking for and we subsequently at some point set up our own factory in Honduras and Puerto Cortez and then I did that for several years and then that that was that was fun but my real inclination was to to ultimately get into the sales and marketing side of things. 
So I was doing this in the context of really manufacturing and engineering, which was fun. I liked doing it. But you weren't really working with customers. customers. That, right. that was right. it. That's, that was the, the change I wanted to make. So after a couple of years of doing this, I, there was a guy in North Carolina who was really one of the pioneers of international trade in the state, a fellow by the name of Bill Troxler. And I knew Bill through some of the international organizations, specifically the uh, North Carolina World Trade Association. And I had served on some panels with Bill. And Bill kind of became a quasi-mentor to me. We were friendly. And um, at one point, he had an opening in his organization for an international sales manager. And it actually, Bill didn't approach me about this. This came through another fellow that was the head of the U.S. Department of Commerce office, the International Trade Administration office in Greensburg, a guy named Jack Whiteley, who's a friend of mine. And Jack said, did you hear Bill's got an opening? I said, no. He said, would you mind if I recommended you to Bill? I said, no, I know Bill. That would be great. So Jack introduced me to Bill. Oh, and, really? And Bill, because we already knew each other, said, you know, I'd be interested in you having you come work for me. He said, but he, his product was non-destructive test equipment that used radioisotopes. <laughs> so he said to me, you know, you don't really have a technical background. I, I'm looking for someone with a physics degree or something. <laughs> and I said to Bill, I said, look, uh, can you give me a chance to learn the product? And if I can learn it, then maybe you'll give me the position. So anyone using Bill's equipment had to get a, take a nuclear a course with the nuclear regulatory commission and get licensed to handle the equipment because the radioisotopes so bill and i discussed and he said you take the course and if you pass it and you understand the principles tell me and you'll have a job with you can do that and i took the course and passed the course and he said okay you're my international sales manager wow. and that's how i ended up working for bill and really understudying with the guy that was really one of the pioneers in north carolina of international trade you know wow i looked i, I looked up his obituary actually <laughs> oh he was a great guy what a fascinating guy fascinating. he was a veteran from world war ii uh, uh it looks like he developed all sorts of devices mm -hmm. but uh interesting guy but what so what did his these devices do mainly the what you were selling well it was it, it was a really fascinating technology was used primarily in the construction industry for uh, what I would call anything that required compaction. This was a way of measuring the compaction of engineering materials, asphalt, concrete, aggregate, soil, without having to do a destructive test. So historically, you would test the density of, let's say when they lay a road, you'll spend millions of dollars laying an asphalt highway and the highway would have to cool down. Mm -hmm. to, they would compact it to whatever the specified densities were. The, the highway would have to cool down, and then you'd come back and you'd cut cores in this incredibly expensive surface that you just laid. And they'd take the cores out of the surface. You'll see a lot of highway. You'll see where the cores have been taken. And then they'll measure the, the density of the, of the core to make sure that the highway's been laid down to the appropriate spec. If it doesn't meet the spec, they have to tear up the highway and redo oh it. Oh, my gosh. And there would be huge, huge penalties associated with that. Bill, Bill Troxler developed this gauge that used a used radio uh, radioisotope, in this case cesium-137, 
and it would emit gamma photons into the material you were measuring, and that would allow you to, it would be calibrated to the material, but you could measure the electron density of the material non-destructively. That was the principle behind this. And the whole world wanted these, and they were used primarily on highway projects. Mm -hmm. And all over the world, highways are being built constantly. So <clears throat> by working with Bill, I had a chance to literally travel the world and work on prominent highway projects, the, the pan-European highway through Eastern Europe when it was still East Bloc, all communist wow. countries, um, the uh, Padalarang Chilinyi Highway between Jakarta and Bandung, uh, second Bosporus Bridge project in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, I worked with Aramco, who used to, they would compact roads to get to the, 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 the drilling sites where they would drill their wells, so they were buying gauges. Um, I, China had just started, really started developing infrastructure at that point, so China was buying the gauges. Uh, I, I made, were there some really isolated places that you were going into in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, like the the band the the Padalarang Chilinyi Highway between Jakarta and Bandung was pretty was pretty desolate, and uh, the you know going through Eastern Europe, Soviet Union. I mean, it was really it was really fun, and uh, Bill's equipment was all over the world, and it wasn't just for the highway construction. Uh, he also had a, a an instrument that was used for uh, measuring the hydrogen moisture levels in soil, which was being used around the world for irrigation sked purposes. Mm -hmm. So all over the world you'd have research institutes and or actual farms using this equipment to determine how much irrigation to apply to maximize the put of the crops. I mean, so we were doing business in India and all through, as I mentioned earlier, Africa, although I didn't have a chance really to get into Central Africa. Africa was using the gauges. So I hit the jackpot in terms of a guy that wanted to do international sales and marketing by hooking up with Bill Troxel that early in my career. And that really, even to this day, all these years later, I have such fond recollections of, of that experience that, wow. that that really fulfilled the dream that I had as a kid to see the world the way I had a chance to see it when I was working for Bill. And Bill took me with him to International Road Federation conferences. And so I was meeting people that he knew that introduced me to more people and so that was just the, the it was it was it was the fulfillment of a childhood dream to see the world as a business guy at that level it was just great yeah. and of course it wasn't just the business part of it I was going to so many places the introduction I was getting to these cultures and the societies was just you know something you couldn't have imagined and certainly something I could never have achieved academically if I'd stayed in the academic community that sure. I, don't, I would never have been exposed to that much so quickly well let's talk about um, some of your memories from working in the Eastern Bloc while it was still you know <laughs> uh, part of the Soviet Union uh, what what are some do you have some memories about working in I don't know what were some of the countries where you, you were in Russia yeah, actually, I was in the Soviet Union. My first trip to the Soviet Union was probably in 87. And oh. I remember waiting. For, I, 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 we had an office in Germany, so I was going to fly to Germany, and then I was going to go from Germany, from Munich to Moscow. That was two years before the, the wall the, the, came before down. Before the, right, everything came apart. So I still had the opportunity to see the Soviet Union and the East Bloc countries still under communist control. Not that they were a wonderful place to see, because you could clearly see that time had left 
them behind and yeah. the repression was evident and the deprivation was evident. But it was fortunate I had a chance to see it mm-hmm. because that's a thing you'll never see again. I mean, you'll see deprivation and you know repression around the world, but you won't see the East Bloc or the Soviet Union again. So for me, it was really fulfilling insofar as my family on both sides had escaped the Bolsheviks and, oh, and no yeah. one had been back to the Soviet Union since 1917. <laughs> So I was the first family member in 1987 to return to the you Soviet Union. What towns? I mean, did you get to Moscow? Visit? I was in Moscow oh, for was, a big for a big trade show. Was there was your family in Moscow, or were they in more rural uh, areas? My my family grew, was from the uh, uh, Odessa area. Oh, okay. okay. So they were from Odessa. I never got to Odessa, but just getting to back to oh, yeah. Russia to me was very fulfilling. And I even remember I was. I, I was trying at that point in my life to keep a diary because I was getting ready to in, embark on this great adventure I had always dreamed about. So I remember I was in Kennedy Airport. I was catching the plane to Europe, and then from there I was going to go to Moscow. I remember making notes to myself about the emotionality I was experiencing as the first family member to go back to Russia in all those years. Because I remember my, you know, my family, they, they came here and they literally left the, the, the part, the, my family members that escaped basically lost contact with the rest of the family that stayed and never saw them again. Right. So for me, it was really a feeling experience to go back and, I mean, and so I, Absolutely. It, yeah, so it was beyond the, the business opportunity, it really was an emotional thing for me. And so I, that, that was really very fulfilling. Did you, were you ever able to walk around on your own at night or was there always someone with you? You know, I was, I, I was, and this is a good thing for people that are going out and venturing out into the, the, the world. I was really diligent about making sure I always had people to accompany me. So in many cases, I would be going out doing interviews for agents and distributors. And so I would be going to meet people. People would be waiting for me. In countries where we already had agents and distributors established, they would be there to meet me from the time I arrived to the, the time I left. So I was always fortunate that I had someone with me that would both show me around and also at some level protect me. Although I was never threatened anywhere, I never felt endangered, but I was in some really interesting places where no telling what could have happened. Um, you know, the fact I was involved at that point in the in radioactive materials put me in contact with a number of really interesting East Bloc institutions that, that clearly were militarily ali- aligned with local military. I mean, I, I remember once I ended up on a what was supposedly a secret military base in Yugoslavia doing a seminar on nuclear gauges to all these military guys. So I was going to some really crazy places and and the guy that was there in Yugoslavia, his name was Ninad Vojevic. He was the guy that took care of me, and he took care of me. And I, I did a good business in Yugoslavia, of course. This is when it was still Yugoslavia before right. it broke up and before you had the genocide problems. But right. I went to places like that, but I, I always made it a point to make sure I had people there with me. In many cases, I had the, back in those days, I had the consulates doing agent distributor searches for me. You know, if it was oh, a yeah. country where I didn't have yeah. someone and I wanted to set someone up in that particular country, I would work through the local embassy or the consulate. And so I would have somebody from the embassy accompany me. So I, I always had someone with me. So it was, you know. I'm smiling. And I'm smiling because I'm remembering 
I'm, I'm thinking that was smart because on my second trip to Shanghai, uh, I was so cocky. I thought <laughs> I could go out to this. Uh, uh, I took a client after the business. We I took him to this uh, these gardens or some big house or something. We didn't have an interpreter with us. We didn't have a cell phone with us. That's right. And uh, we had a little incident uh with a old woman on a bicycle, and we ended up at the uh, Shanghai police station uh, because I was so cocky. I didn't think to, uh, you know, bring an interpreter with us at the time. So well, well, that was the other thing, having an interpreter, because in a lot of these countries, <laughs> but this is early on, people didn't speak. There were a lot. You didn't have a lot of English being widely spoken. A lot of these countries, their kids and students hadn't come to study here, or in your so. The language barrier was a big consideration too. In a lot of places where they didn't have any even English signage, you couldn't read a sign mm -hmm. as to know where you were or where you were going. So yeah. I was really very diligent making sure I did my homework before I ventured out. I had it all mapped out and well planned and really didn't do what I would I didn't do too much improvising. That was smart. I can, I can tell you can't end up in awkward situations. <laughs> you, well, you could end up in serious trouble if you Absolutely. if you tried to improvise, particularly in a lot of the places that I would consider to be the more dangerous places: Soviet Union, East mm -hmm. Bloc. Um, you know, some of the Middle Eastern countries were were, you know, I won't say dangerous, but certainly not some place you'd want to go wandering around on your Absolutely. own. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and my wife had always warned me to be careful, too, because she said, you never know when you're going to go somewhere and someone may think you're not necessarily a business guy, but you're, you know, working for an intelligence agency or something. So sure. you had to be you had to be careful about that. And, Absolutely. And in all the traveling I did over all these years, I never so much as had one incident where I felt endangered. That's amazing, because you've traveled a lot. That's amazing. Never, I, if anything, I had nothing but wonderful experiences everywhere I went, and even in what were some of the more oppressive countries, even the officials I dealt with were, were wonderful, were nice, and treated me with tremendous respect and admiration. In many cases, they were happy I was there to see their country and to, to visit them. I mean, they thought sure. that was great, because a lot of these places... Americans weren't going to. Right. So here, I'm showing up as an American, and of course, I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed at that point, <laughs> and I was excited about everything I was doing, and I think my enthusiasm was infectious with a lot of these people, and they really yeah. responded nicely. Not, not that I was doing it for any other purpose, and I was excited about it, but it certainly benefited me, ultimately, in terms of my business relationships with a lot of these folks. Oh, I'm sure. It was I'm wonderful. Sure. Now, I remember we talked, uh, you mentioned in one of our conversations that your distributor in Saudi Arabia, and I don't know which company this was for, was the Bin Laden family. Yeah, this is, that's an interesting story. Uh, I had an a, a agent slash distributor in Saudi Arabia, the Al Salam group, and they were part of the Mohammed bin Laden group. And this is pre-Osama bin Laden. So, no, yeah. I mean, at that point, Osama had probably already gone off to fight with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. This was pre-9-11, so there was none of the terrorist right. threat at that right. point. No one right. knew what was to come. Right. But the, with the bin Laden group being one of the most influential families in Saudi Arabia, they were a very logical candidate to pick as a business partner. So... I can't remember the genesis of it. I think I met someone that worked for them at a trade show here at the, in the United States. 
In fact, he was an Armenian fellow by the name of Hagop Chalikian. I remember all these names, which you is crazy. You That's great. Hagop was a wonderful guy and invited me to Saudi Arabia. And it turns out Hagop, Hagop and, a, and a group of Armenians were, do, you know, with the Saudi companies, they hire people to do a, a lot of the managerial work for them. So in the case of the division of the Mohammed bin Laden group I was dealing with, there happened to be a key group of Armenian guys that were friends and were in key managerial positions. It turns out they were all tennis players. And I'm, I'm an avid tennis player. So they would always get excited when I would come visit because after hours, instead of going out to eat at night, we would stay in the compound and play tennis together. And that was one of my fond recollections, playing tennis at the compound with these guys, who I remember all these years later. And that was, again, kind of the stuff that it. I mean, yeah. you know, I was in Romania when Ceausescu was still in power, and that was a really, really brutal place. There was nothing there that he'd stripped clean. He was building his famous palace at that point. And I was there on a business trip, and I was staying at the Intercontinental in Bucharest. And I got there on a Friday, I think my meeting with the with the authorities about the nuclear gauges was on Monday, so I had a long weekend, but it was like a scene out of a movie. The swimming pool was empty and had maybe had a little, you know, stale water in the bottom and the, there was no food to speak of any, not good quality food. So I go to the front desk of the hotel and I ask for the manager and I say, and it was a strange thing to ask, and I said, by chance is there a tennis club or a te are there tennis courts here in town where I could go play tennis this weekend. Because Bucharest was not the kind of place you went sightseeing. I mean, it was really right, austere right. and not a very nice place. So it turns out the guy says to me, you know, in broken English, of course, I'm an avid tennis player and I belong to a nice club here in town. Why don't you be my guest for the weekend? So I ended up at this really nice tennis club in Bucharest playing tennis all weekend on these beautiful red clay courts with the manager of the Intercontinental Hotel and his friends in Bucharest. The international language of of love, tennis. Well, <laughs> it, I got to tell you, you, you speak of the international language. I got the, the international language was a smile. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how effective that language is wherever you go. Even as I said, in the most brutal and supposedly repressive places, people respond. Even people in official capacities respond so favorably to smiles, there's, I mean, that's the universal language. Absolutely. And I, I think that a lot of the wonderful experiences I had along the way were a result of my being so, and here I am as a shy, introverted person, being so outgoing and smiling and being, you know, yeah. obviously, a, you know, somebody that they didn't have to worry about. And so, again, the, the smile and the enthusiasm to me was always infectious. You know, I was it in, disarms people. It does. In, it's in disarming a good way. in a good in, way. In a good That's way. right. I, 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 this is oh my gosh. This is going back a long. This is probably eighty-seven-ish to my first trip to China, and China had not started developing in any significant way at that point. You remember what around what year that? Yeah, was? it's like eighty-seven. So what? Okay. Shanghai Protocol was nineteen seventy-two. That's when Nixon opened China. Right. And China was still a pretty primitive place. In fact, I remember my first trip to Beijing. It was like a National Geographic magazine. Tiananmen Square was just millions of bicycles and dirty, smoggy buses. There were no cars or anything. So, I mean, this is my first trip to China. And 
I'm in Beijing, and I go to Nanjing, and at that point, Nanjing had the equivalent of what was like a Quonset Hut airport. I mean, it was not an elaborate airport, and the planes, this is, this is going back a long way. And, and again, I, I, I share these experiences because I got to see the world when it was still not as, today, it's too de- everything's too developed today. I liked it when it was primitive. Primitive was fun, and I wish I had traveled it even in the 1800s when it was more primitive. But I got to see it before everything got modernized, before there did, was a... Did you take many photos? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got at, lots of photos, lots That's of photos. Cool. But, you know, today you got a Starbucks on every corner, McDonald's. Yeah. Back then you didn't have, you you know, Bill Troxler, it's interesting. Bill Troxler, who was a very experienced, experienced international traveler, he always told me, pack saltine crackers and peanut butter because you don't know when you're going to be able to not get a meal. And that's what I would carry. I'd carry and, and Marlboro cigarettes. As I would, a gift? I No, what you would do, like in like when I was in Moscow, on the, yeah. the ta- because everybody was a state employee, taxis would not pick you up. So you had to hope that a person with a private car would pick you up. So you would stand on the side of the street and hold a pack of Marlboro cigarettes down by your leg as people are driving by and someone would see the pack of cigarettes and they'd stop and they'd give you a ride for the pack of cigarettes. And you would get in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would go with them because, well, if they did something to me in, in a place like the Soviet Union, I, oh, that, that would be, they wouldn't break the law at that point. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah, they were, it was so repressive. They wouldn't think of breaking the law. Uh, so I would use cigarettes. Cigarettes was like a currency. So I'd take packs of cigarettes with me and I'd take saltine wow. crackers and peanut butter if I needed a meal. So I mean, it was really fun. I had a really good time, as you can tell. Yeah. So anyway, I'm in I'm in China and I'm 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 leaving Nanjing. I got to get to the airplane. I'm going through these checkpoints. I got tables set up with a Chinese soldier sitting there checking your papers, and I can see the plane out on the tarmac. You know, this is these are this like like I said, it was like a Quonset Hut airport, and you can see the plane. I'm thinking, boy, I got to get on this plane. And you know, every time you go through a checkpoint, you never know what's going to happen and if they're going to, you know. Your paperwork's out, of, and I'll tell you a story about the paperwork being out of order too in a minute. So I'm going through the checkpoints, and at that point I was a really, I was a young fellow. People can't see us in the podcast, but I had really thick hair, thick dark hair, and I had a really great handlebar mustache, <laughs> a really great hand. And I'm going through the checkpoints, and I get to the last guy there at the table, Chinese guy. He's got an AK-47 sitting on the table. He's checking my papers, and he looks up at me, and he says to me in like really broken English. That's a great mustache, and smiles at me, and I smile at him, and gives me the papers, and I go walking off to the airport. Whatever gets you through. Whatever this, gets, whatever you, gets through. you through customs. And, and that man. was like again getting back to this, the smiling thing. Yeah. I smiled everywhere I went, so yeah. it would, it, you know, it put pe- people felt comfortable. And you don't look scared. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you I don't was, ever want yeah. to look. Afraid. Yeah, like you're up to something funky. Yeah, right. I mean, you look, yeah, and so I right. always smiled, and I remember this guy, he sits there and he says to me, I thought that was such a cute thing, and I wish I could have recorded it. Back then, you didn't have a cell phone to record it with, yeah. but but that but that was, you know, those are the kind of things I remember from my trips. I, I, I probably remember those types of interpersonal, cultural things far more than I remember any sort of business interaction. Sure, sure. You know, I did the business and enjoyed it and had a great time doing it, but it was Again, I, for me, it was fulfilling this childhood dream, and, it, and I was a person that really was able to, to do that. And, you know, even when I, I left Troxler and went to another company, and at that point they were very, this was Halstead. Yeah, and they, they were, at that time, they were the largest copper tube manufacturer in the world. But the guy that ran the company, he didn't have his own international division. He worked through a third party that handles his, his exports for him. 
and he wanted to take control of his own international distribution. So I was introduced to him through a mutual friend and wrote him a proposal on what I thought he should do to set up an international division. And he said, would you do that for me? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And cool. that's how I ended up in, in, in that in the copper tubing industry right. was through, through which is where you are now still. which is where I'm at still. today yeah now when you uh, traveled all the way back on these business trips did you always try to see some kind of cultural site always. or something always yeah. always I would go to I'd go to historical sites I went to see when I was in I was just talking about Nanjing I went to see the home of Sun Yat-sen I mean Ooh. that's the kind of stuff I would do I would go to places that that the locals would go to, Linggu Pagoda in Beijing, Ming Tombs. I mean, I went to places where the locals would go, you know. Yeah. I, didn't go to, I didn't go to what would be Western tourist sites. I like mm-hmm. going to really interesting, unique places that really put me in contact with the, the culture and the religion mm-hmm. and the history. The history, yeah. yeah. And, and that's how, that to me, you know, and I go back, you know, you think about it back to that academic period, the difference between actually going and touching and feeling it like I had a chance to do as opposed to sitting and studying it in a library and reading it in books, that, that, was the, that was the difference for me. So even though to this day I have the regret of not having completed my academic work just because I left that as unfinished business, getting a chance to do what I had a chance to do along the way. There was no, you know, there's no way you can even put a value on it. Right. Well, when I was starting my business, and I have a, uh, an undergraduate degree in history, and uh, so, and I really, I didn't have, really have any business courses. I went to liberal arts school. So I started looking at getting a master's. It was going to take me 10 years to start over. And what I'm saying is you got to do what you wanted to do without that. The PhD really didn't matter for your career. I mean, it'd be that's right. it fulfilling. Did. Yeah. But yeah, that's right. It, 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 I don't think it mattered. In fact, in some instances along the way, I think people kind of denigrated me for having as much academic background as I had. Really? Yeah, that they, you know... And, and not today. People, not not not, people, not today. But people back. Appreciate but, it yeah, but back then, and some of my business experiences, not not with a company like Trump, but along the way, some people, oh, he's just a college. They would jokingly say, oh, he's just a college professor. He doesn't know enough about business. So I think it was done in, in jest. It wasn't yeah. really denigrating me in that right. sense. But it was like you know they would joke about it and make fun of it. When you met with all these companies around the world, they. You had an in-depth appreciation of where right. they came from That's right. what was going on with them, and it wasn't just, you know, bu- just business. Yeah, that's I mean, right. There, that's absolutely there right. There was depth to yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, no, and that's why I'm saying for, for someone young, and I would impart this to the kids if I have a chance to teach at mm-hmm. one of the schools maybe someday, I would, that's what I would tell them. I would tell them if they wanted to be really successful internationally, they they've got to get that other dimension of the yeah. of the of the people they're going to interact with, right? To where it's not the as you mentioned early in the discussion, it's not the just mechanical business interaction. Exactly. Take take the take the relationship to the next level, even even if it means you don't necessarily accomplish your business objective in the short term. Long term, you'll be far more successful establishing the the kind of right. relationship you're going to establish if you take. 
if you take the thing to kind of a different existential level. Yeah. Well, I'm still a big believer in the liberal arts education. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, That's you right. Can, I, I, you know, when I first started out in my career, I had sales training and learned sales techniques. But the other, you know, it would it would take a long time to to learn that when you're a working adult. So, that's right. That's right. So, but but you're 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 you hit it right in that. I think it it at least in my case, your case, it proves the value of that liberal arts component of your education. Yeah. It, it, and it could be a complete liberal arts education, or it could be having you know some component of liberal arts in your curriculum. But to just have a mechanical business background, I'm not sure that gets you where you need to go. Yeah. Of course, I, I'm not... Unless doing, you're an accountant or something. Yeah, like sure, that. sure. It depends on your phone. But yeah. I'm thinking in the sales and marketing context, Absolutely. I think the liberal arts piece of it's invaluable, to be honest yeah. with you. And yeah. it certainly benefited me along the way. The company that I first worked for went through a management training program, United States Lines. They hired athletes and, you know different people with just outgoing personalities and then they would uh, train them in their sales techniques. That was just kind of their philosophy for what it was worth. But, uh, you know, it was always an interesting group of people because everybody had really diverse backgrounds, but none of them had, you know, just had a sales degree or anything like that. So Yeah, and I think that kind of diverse background makes you much more effective Depending, you know, depending on what you're going to do. Obviously, like you said, if you're going to be in finance, I'm not sure. Yeah. But, but even then, I think from the standpoint of your interactions with the folks you might be dealing with if you're doing international finance, certainly understanding the culture oh, and sure. society and religion, there's, that's valuable. It's valuable to, every, to yeah, everybody right. in business. That's right. So, 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 so I was fortunate in that regard that I had that background, and, you know, I think it helped me. And But... You know, I, I, and as I said, I regret the fact that today the world has actually contracted and has gotten smaller as a result of technology and social media. I'm not sure. It's certainly not as interesting as it was. I mean, I interact with people all over the world every day <laughs> via emails and text exactly. messages. I mean, so, so the world has clearly shrunk, but I'm not sure, as I said, the the homogeneity of of it all is is as interesting as when it was still a unique and you know different kind of place. I mean, I made my you know when I first went to like a place like Dubai, the only thing in Dubai was the fish market and the gold souk. And today, Dubai is this ultra modern mm -hmm. metropolis in the Middle East. And to me, that makes Dubai far less interesting today than it was when it was the fish market and the gold souk, I mean, it, right? I mean, right, right. It, it was really unique. It was, it was days. unique. So that's wonderful. Thank you, David Radloff. For, Thank you, Betsy. For being the guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 